new sermon series we're starting today on the book of Genesis. We're going to spend pretty much from now until uh, Easter going through the book of Genesis, looking at uh, most of the major themes that we see throughout throughout the book. And so we're going to, I mean, we could spend a long, long time on East, on, on Genesis if we wanted to. We're going to try to do it in just a few months, which means we're going to have to try to make pretty good time as we work our way through it. We're going to devote one week essentially to each, like, to like major themes that we see in the first probably 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, you know, creation, humanity, sin, judgment, redemption, you know, these kinds of things. And then we're going to spend, um, you know, a week on any given story in the last, you know, 30 to 40 chapters of Genesis that kind of develop the stories of the patriarchs and the people that uh, kind of give rise to the nation of Israel and ultimately to to Jesus the Messiah. So um, what we're going to see as we work through Genesis over the next few months is that um, it kind of it, it sets the foundation. It kind of builds a framework where all of the the gospel story can can kind of unfold on top of it. You can't have can have salvation without a savior. You can't have a savior without knowing where he came from. Genesis shows us where that savior came from. It also answers all kinds of these just foundational questions about existence um, that we're trying to kind of figure out and understand. Right? Who is God? Who am I? How did how did I get here? Why are why are we here? Why is there something instead of nothing? Why why is there suffering? How am I supposed to account for suffering? You know, foundational questions like that is kind of what we see in the book of Genesis that we're going to work through. What we're also going to see is that Genesis does not shy away from big questions, right? Front page, you know, issues, sex, gender, marriage, race, racism, violence, misconduct, deception, wealth, power, greed, murder, abuse, war. I mean, all of these kinds of like, you know, like, like issues that are constantly front of mind for our culture's conscience, consciousness. Jesus speaks to these kinds of, kinds of issues. It helps us kind of see our place in the, the larger story that God is kind of writing of human history. Uh, and it kind of puts us into context within this like larger redemptive plan of God and his uh, salvation history. So that's kind of the book of Genesis uh, by and large that we're going to look at for the next few weeks. Today, we're going to zoom in on the doctrine of creation. Genesis chapter one, look at creation. We're going to understand, we're going to think through just briefly some of the different, you know, views, some of the different like streams of thought that people have on where the world came from and on how to interpret Genesis chapter 1, how to understand creation versus evolution and these kinds of, kinds of things. We'll think a little bit about the age of the earth and how different you know, schools of thought in theology account for uh, Genesis chapter 1 and how it kind of understands how old the earth is. And we're also just going to think about some of the implications of the doctrine of creation. What, it, what the doctrine of creation, you know, if, assuming that the doctrine of creation is, is more than like an intellectual topic to debate about or like think about or, or kind of, you know, think is interesting, assuming that it has some sort of real spiritual edifying application for our lives, we're going to think about how the doctrine of creation comes to bear uh, on, on us. So I'm going to pray. Uh, well, I'm going to read Genesis chapter one, and then I'm going to, I'm going to pray, and then we'll, then we'll get rolling. We'll start in Genesis chapter one, verse one. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And he was, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and he separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which their seed, uh, in which is their seed according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which their seed according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was morning and there was evening, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens and separate the day from the night. And let them be signs for the seasons and for the days and years. And let them, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was so. And then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree that with its seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. 
And to every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege that it is to um, be spoken to by our creator, the one who made us, the one who formed us. We thank you for the privilege that it is to interact with our God and to have him reveal himself to us. Lord, we pray your blessing on our time this morning as we meditate on your word and as we consider the doctrine of creation and how it, uh, why it matters, how it affects our, our lives as your people today. Please bless our time. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to cover, uh, um, we're not going to walk through uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse by verse per se. Because a lot of it is kind of, um, you know, it's fairly self-evident, right? You kind of read through it, and it's just a story that you can kind of read and understand. I mean, the skeletal structure is essentially, the first two verses uh, is kind of the initial description of God's creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The vast majority of the chapter, verses 3 to 31, are this kind of, uh, these six days that we see God creating and fashioning and, and forming. So, uh, and it kind of has a, 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 you know, a pattern to it. So light and darkness on day one, water and sky on day two, earth, plants, and trees on day three. You can almost imagine those three kind of being in the left-hand column. Uh, you know, light and darkness, water and sky, earth, plants, and trees. And then corresponding to days one, two, and three are days four, five, and six. So uh, day four is sun, moon, and stars, which kind of corresponds to the light and the darkness. Uh, day five is fish and birds, which kind of corresponds to the water and the sky. And then day six is animals and humanity, which corresponds to, uh, to the earth and to, to trees and vegetation and these kinds of, kinds of things. And then on day seven, God rests from all the creation that he's made and that how he is now subsequently filled. He formed it and he filled it. Uh, and then he kind of put humanity in it. That's days one through six. And then the first couple, chap- first couple verses from Genesis chapter two, day seven, God rests. And he, he rests from the creation that he's made. He, he enjoys the creation that he has made. It's kind of a, a clear, fairly self-evident structure. But what I want to spend a couple of minutes on is just kind of thinking through this like million-dollar question that we all have, which is how do we interpret this, right? How, how, do, we, how do we interpret Genesis chapter 1? Uh, what exactly are we reading when we read Genesis chapter 1? How are we supposed to understand it? How did Moses intend for Genesis chapter 1 to be understood? How should Genesis chapter 1 come to bear on our understanding of the origin of the universe? You know, and kind of thinking through that in, in you know, uh, in comparison with or in relation to, you know, science and, and the, the, what is kind of overwhelmingly accepted in the world is the, the theory of evolution. Kind of, kind of think about those kinds of things. So we'll start with, now I'm, I'm not going to do any of these justice because you can spend entire 
college courses, graduate school courses, thinking about any given you know, theory on the, age of the, on the origin of the universe or the age of the earth. But at least want to define some terms, kind of maybe put a spectrum in front of us here. So on the one side of the spectrum is young earth creation, right? So, um, you know, the idea is that everything that we read in Genesis chapter 1 is to be taken literally. It's uh, exactly what you read is kind of exactly what happened. We're talking about six literal 24-hour days, about a week, right? From last Sunday to today is literally the amount of time that God took to create the entire world. And as such, uh, the, the world and the universe is precisely six days older than humanity. Humanity, like however old, however old the, the human species is, uh, that's one week younger than, the, the earth itself is one week older than all of, uh, of humanity. And so proponents of this view will, they'll, they'll kind of, um, the reason why kind of, they, they say this is, that it's a young earth creation that they kind of, um, you know, that they kind of, the reason, the, the way that they land on the age of the earth is they take uh, events in the Bible that they can kind of pin onto a, a chronological timeline, like, you know, the, the birth of Christ or, you know, various uh, figures in the Old Testament that kind of, they know when specific things happen. They'll pin those on a timeline and then they'll kind of look at the genealogies that they see, uh, you know, outside of it and they'll kind of add them all up and kind of land at a figure of about six to 10,000 years old. So humanity is about six to ten, six to 10,000 years old. Adam himself walked on the earth six to 10,000 years ago, and the earth is no more than six days older than, than Adam. Of course, they'll hear scientists, you know, object and say the earth is four billion years old, and they'll just, you know, respond in any number of ways. One is they'll, you know, say, you're just mistaken, <laughs> right? You've got your scientists that say, four billion. We've got our scientists that say 6,000, so we just think you're wrong. Or they'll say it just, uh, it looks that way. The earth looks like it's four billion years old. And we can understand why you might think that it's four billion years old, but it was created six to 10,000 years ago, and it just looks older. Because it's similar to how Adam, I mean, Adam was created by God, and he was probably looked like an adult. Probably looked my age, you know, in his 30s or something, and yet he was like one minute old. So Adam was essentially a newborn baby in terms of his actual age, but he looked like a mature adult. And so, so you know, young earth creationists will say that's, that's how the earth was. Like the earth was, you know, we can explain why it might look older because it is younger, but it just was created with maturity kind of already built into it. So young earth creation, good view to hold, faithful Christians hold it, Right. It's not without its difficulties, which I'm not going to not going to dive into all the strengths and weaknesses of all of the, the views. There, there's there's difficulties, uh, you know, both exegetically and scientifically with with young earth creationism. But that's neither here nor there. It's a good view to have. Lots of godly people hold it. Next is the far other. So if that's the one side of the spectrum, young earth creation, the other one would be uh, evolution. But specifically, like secular, materialistic, atheistic evolution. Right? It's kind of the far other end of the, the spectrum. And here's the, the idea with this one is obviously God didn't create the world, right? Because there is no God. We're starting with the assumption that there is no God because we're starting with the assumption as science demands of us that there only is what we can see and touch and observe and test and quantify, what we can objectively know. And so we can't see God, so there must not be a God. So we have to figure out a way to account for the world without God. And so that's kind of, you know, materialistic, atheistic, secular evolution. And so they'll, they'll kind of, you know, 
have a whole you know, way of accounting for everything that we see around us, right? We can account for um, all of the diversity of life, the fact that there's all these different kinds of species. It doesn't need a God that created each of them individually. They, just, they came about by change over time. Slow changes over long periods of time can account for and give rise to uh, the diversity of life that we can see. So human beings, dogs, hermit crabs, bananas, the coronavirus, I mean, any, any living thing just all can go back to the common ancestor and the way that we can account for why one thing turned out this way and another thing turned out this way is because they just kind of slowly kind of took, took shape in that direction. No guidance, no kind of what, no kind of caretaking from any sort of God, just it did it by itself. So, you know, it's a little bit of a tough sell, but you know, it just is what it is. So, so the, the, just the idea of diversity of life is a tough sell, but then you ask, all right, well, where did the first life come from? Right? Like there's rocks and you know, there, there's everything on this. I'm the only animate thing on this stage right now and never has an inanimate thing just kind of randomly come out of a, a, a group of inanimate. Like I don't walk around here on a Thursday and look at the stage and see something alive on the stage that came from, from non-life. So they'll say, where'd that come from? And they'll say, well, it just ran, like, ran, like so, at some point there was a bunch of n- non-living matter that spontaneously and randomly gave rise to living matter. It was kind of a, a new generation of life when there was no life, which is a tough sell because we don't really see that uh, in, in nature. But you can even ask me even further. All right, well then, so I'll grant you that um, diversity of life came from one common ancestor. And I'll grant you that that one common ancestor arose randomly and spontaneously from non-living matter. But where'd the matter come from? Where did the non-living matter come from? And they'll say, you know, the Big Bang, right? So, so as best as I can, as best as I can understand, I mean, I'm not a scientist, as best as I can understand the Big Bang, all of the matter in all of the universe, everything... In this room, everything in the whole entire world, all the planets, all of the stars, all the galaxies, I mean, every single thing was all compressed into a tiny little ball, way smaller than my, my hands, like literally smaller than an atom, smaller than an electron. Everything that's in all the universe was, was jam-packed, almost infinitely dense into a tiny little thing like that. And then randomly, for, for kind of no particular reason, it spontaneously expanded and exploded into what we now know is the universe. But again, you know, given that there's the assumption that there's no God, you can always just, right, you can say, all right, well, diversity of life came from a common ancestor. Where'd that come from? It came from non-living matter. Where'd that come from? It came from the Big Bang. Well, what was there before the Big Bang? Like, what happened before that? And eventually they'll just say, you know, what are you, a cop? Like, quit asking questions. Like, like stop, you know, we don't know the answer. Like, here's what we know, person asking us questions. We know that the earth is 4.5 billion years old. It's not eternal. We know it had a beginning, but we don't know what was before it. And we know that the universe is, you know, whatever, 13 billion years old, but we don't know what came before it. We know that it, we don't know what it was. We just know that it wasn't God. It's kind of the, kind of the idea for, for how uh, materialistic evolution kind of accounts for the, for the universe, which, you know, if I'm being honest, this is probably the one that has the most difficulties. It's probably the, the view that has the most, it's the toughest one to defend because you have some, some assumptions like there is no God uh, that you can't really prove, but you also, they, it really makes it difficult to prove anything thing else. Also, I don't think that you can be a Christian and have this view um, because this view says God doesn't exist and Christians believe in God. 
So, so I, don't, I don't think you can be a Christian and believe in, in secular, atheistic, materialistic evolution, as, as it were. But those are the two ends of the spectrum. Young Earth creation, secular, materialistic evolution. And then, you know, there's a, a spectrum of beliefs in, in between. Well, the, the next one would be uh, theistic evolution. So theistic evolution, um, in terms of the nuts and bolts, looks a lot like the like atheistic evolution in terms of the mechanism of how everything works, how, you know, uh, life kind of gradually changes over time. It just plugs in God at the very beginning. So it says where secular atheistic evolution has a, has a difficult time, on, you know, explaining where the universe came from, we'll just say God, God made it. And so it's a, it, it kind of solves a lot of, the, a lot of the difficult questions that secular evolution can't answer. Theistic evolution says... Every, everything, we kind of agree with everything that you see there, but, but God is, is there. And, and most people, a lot of proponents of theistic evolution tend to understand God as having, like, created the universe, set it in place, put, like, finely tuned all of the, you know, all of the physical laws and biological processes so that the universe would kind of do as it does, and then he just kind of steps back and doesn't really... In, interrupt, doesn't really uh, involve himself in the process too much after that, doesn't really intervene. So, in a, I mean, theistic evolution, to, I mean, it, there's like a million streams of it, so I don't want to speak for all of them, but, you know, it, it, it tends to be skeptical of the idea that God intervenes. God acts in human history. You know, God is, you know, uh, intimately involved in his creation as we see it today. So, again, depending on you know, how consistent you are with your view of theistic evolution, it can also be tough to reconcile with the Bible because the Bible teaches very clearly that God is involved in his creation and he does speak and act and he works in the world in time and space. So, depending on, again, what flavor of theistic evolution we're talking about, that can be a little bit tough to reconcile with an active and involved God. So, young earth creation, secular evolution, theistic evolution, um, and then kind of, you know, elsewhere on the spectrum would be old earth creation, right? Which, uh, which you know, again, can, depending on how exactly it understands natural processes and, and evolution or whatnot can, can be similar to theistic evolution. The main difference is going to be that old earth creation, right, starts with the Bible. Like theistic evolution kind of starts with evolution and says, let's just uh, agree that God, uh, you know, started it or, or is kind of over it. And old earth creation kind of starts with the Bible and says the Bible's our authority. We believe the Bible. We just want to uh, understand the Bible rightly. And they just come to different conclusions on whether the earth is old or young. So they'll hear scientists say the earth is 4.5 billion years old and the universe was created 13.8 billion years ago. So they kind of have these, these competing, like, all right, well, the earth is billions of years old, but humanity is thousands of years old. So we have to figure out a way to understand Genesis 1 uh, that, that, you know, is not, that, that's consistent with that, right? We, it, we, like, we, we can't, we, we, have to, we have to interpret Genesis 1, or they do interpret Genesis 1 in such a way that, that accounts for an old earth that's billions of years old with a young humanity that's thousands of years old. And there's, there's any, like, there's, there's dozens of, of kind of views within this, with this as well. A couple of the more prominent ones. One says that the, word, the Hebrew word for, eight, for day in Genesis 1, right? And it was evening, it was morning, the first day. Uh, it can mean 24 hour, a 24-hour day, uh, but it doesn't have to, right? It can also mean uh, like in the day of, you know, Noah or who, like, you know, it could just mean like in the age of or in the time of. Or they'll say it could also mean like a, a day, like a, like a work day. So not a 24, like, 
you know, like I'll say, oh man, I'm glad that day's over, but I'll say it at like five o'clock when I'm driving home as opposed to like at the end of a 24 hour period. So work, so like a work day could mean like a, an undetermined, you know, like for us, a work day, eight hours, 10, whatever it is. But for God, a work day could be whatever, a million years, a billion years. So they'll say a day doesn't necessarily mean uh, a 24 hour period. Um, another view says that those six days are literal 24 hour blocks of time. Uh, it's just that they are distinct from the, the actual creation of the earth. So the creation of the earth took place billions of years ago. And that is represented in Genesis one, one and two in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But they'll say, if you look at the word, uh, for beginning in that, that, uh, verse, it kind of could mean an indefinitely long period of time. So they'll say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That was billions of years ago. And then thousands of years ago, God, uh, kind of the, the six days of creation, they're not six days of creation per se. They're six days of ordering and fashioning and preparing and getting the world that was created billions of years ago, getting it ready for, uh, for, to, to be inhabited by humanity. So they'll say, uh, old earth, young humanity, l- six literal days of, of creation slash ordering and fashioning and, and forming. Or some guys will say, so that's yeah, So there's the day age. There's like the, the big gap between creation and then the other, the other rest of the days. There is, um, a, a, it's called the literary framework view, which basically says, um, we want to interpret Genesis. It, they basically say you shouldn't just interpret the whole Bible literally because the whole Bible wasn't meant to be taken literally. Right? You, sh- you should interpret the Bible as its authors intended for it to be uh, interpreted. And so they'll say Genesis 1 is a poem. It's a song. It's Hebrew poetry. It's not intended to be read literally like exactly what it says. It's intended to be read literarily, right? kind of as, as literature. And they'll point out like, you know, if you read the story, you can kind of see a cadence forming in it. And God said, let there be. And God saw that it was good. And it was so. And there was evening. And there was morning. It kind of just repeats itself and kind of has this the flowing kind of poetic vibe to it. And they'll say, Genesis 1 is a song. It's, it's, uh, it's poetry and it's not scientific uh, data per se. And they'll point to other places in the Bible where this exact thing is true. They'll point to Exodus 14 and 15. Um, in Exodus 14, uh, Israel crosses the Red Sea. You see a historical narrative account of Israel crossing through the Red Sea. And then in Exodus 15, they kind of land safely on the shores of the other side of the Red Sea as they're escaping uh, Egypt. And then Moses and Miriam sing a song about it. And the song is very clearly meant to be not taken. I mean, the song says things like God's right hand came down out of heaven and grabbed the Egyptian horses and hurled them into the sea on our behalf. And so, you know, you're like, well, I don't think that happened literally. I think that that's like a, a poetic representation of what literally happened that was described in, in uh, Exodus 14. Same thing in Judges 4 and 5. Uh, Judges 4 is a story about Deborah and Barak leading Israel to victory over an enemy army. And then in Judges 5, uh, they sing a song about it. And it says things like the stars came down from the heavens and fought against our enemies for us and things like that. One chapter is literal. The other chapter is kind of poetic. And so some, some guys say that's what Genesis 1 and 2 are. Genesis 1, which seems to describe a young earth and six 24-hour days of creation, is a poem. It's a song. 
and doesn't necessarily contradict an old earth understanding. And Genesis 2 is more historical narrative. That is where, you know, we'll, we'll look at it next week, but that's where we see things that maybe seem to, to you know, line up a little bit more with how we understand uh, science today. So there's a range of options, right? There, from young earth creation all the way to secular materialistic evolution, young earth creation, old earth creation, theistic evolution, atheistic evolution. You know, where, where do we stand as a church? We don't have a, I mean, excluding the, positions that are overtly non-Christian, right? The ones that deny that God exists or the ones that deny that God, you know, acts and speaks in time and space and human history. Excluding those, you know, we have some, some leeway to, to understand, you know, the age of the earth and, and biological processes. The elders and I were, were kind of talking about it this week. Several of the views that I just mentioned, again, excluding the ones that are, you know, explicitly contradicting a biblical understanding of of god and humanity and how god acts you know there's there are elders of this church who believe that the earth is young there are elders of the church who believe that the earth is old we all believe that god acts and speaks in time and space and that we can relate to him and and know him and that kind of thing so we, we don't have a formal position that we you know say this is what you have to believe to become a member we tend to think that conversations about the age of the earth should, you know, assuming that they're taking place between Christians who believe in God and trust Jesus and believe that God acts in time and space, they, those, are, those should be amicable conversations between friends and not uh, heated arguments between adversaries, right? A lot, of, a lot of folks in the world will kind of, especially the further you get toward either end, they'll either say, you know, if you don't agree with me, you're a heretic, you're going to hell. Or if you don't agree with me, you're stupid and you're denying science and you're anti-intellectual and, you know, wh- whatever, whatever else that, that it is. And the, the fact of the matter is, best as I can tell, there are lots of faithful Christians who have differing views on uh, the, the age of the earth. I personally, uh, I see merit both for the young earth creation view and for several of the old earth creation views. I'm not entirely sure which one that I... Which one that I land on? If someone, if someone came to me and said, the earth is young, I'm insisting that it's young, I'm not going to argue with them about it because I think that that's a perfectly viable view for how to read Genesis 1 and understand the origin of the earth. But if someone comes to me and says, the earth is old, and here's fossil records and carbon dating and the speed of light, and, and, and they want to argue, I'm not going to argue with that person either because I'm also going to say, I think that you can love God and have a high view of Scripture and understand everything you just said and still account for it uh, by, by understanding that the earth is, is old. So that's some of the usual suspects of how to understand Genesis 1, creation and evolution. Now, what I want to do is take the last few minutes and uh, spell out some of the big theological implications of the doctrine of creation. Why the doctrine of creation matters uh, for us as Christians. What, what are the non-negotiable, the essential things that we have to affirm about creation? And why does it matter? Why does it affect us? And I kind of type some up that I just want to walk through. So the first thing that I think all Christians have to believe is that God created the world out of nothing, right? Regardless of whether, you know, evolution, adaptation, change, fossil record, all, none of that, put, put all that to the side. Christians have to affirm that God created the world out of nothing. Because that kind of implies uh, any number of things, that God is eternal and that the world is not, right? It means that, that uh, the world had a beginning, God did not have a beginning. It means that God is self-sufficient within himself. He doesn't need anything from anyone else. He's independent, he's unique in his glory, 
And it also implies the second point here, which is that there's a distinction between the creator, God, and the creation, the, the world. God is, is not part of the world. God is separate from and he's distinct from the world. And this goes to um, kind of set Christianity apart from virtually any other worldview or, or religion that you might come across, right? Christianity is separate from atheism because it believes that there is a creator and there is a God. It's separate from uh, polytheism, which teaches that there's a bunch of little gods that have a bunch of little tiny, you know, spheres of sovereignty and authority over their tribes or whoever that it, that it is. Christianity says there's one God. He created everything. His sovereignty is over all of creation, not over some part of creation. It separates Christianity from pantheism, which says that God and the universe are the same thing. God is the universe and the universe is God. And so, uh, you know, the, the whole point of our existence as people is to kind of uh, attain to this higher plane of thinking, right? Kind of achieve nirvana, this like realization that I am part of the universe and the universe is me and the universe is God. So I am God and God is me and I'm you and you're me and we're all God and we're all the, right? That's pantheism. Christianity says that's not true because there's a God who is distinct from his creation, which brings us to the third point. God is sovereign over the universe and over everything that is in it. So if God made the universe, if God's the creator and the universe is the creation, we are the creatures, then God is, God has authority over us, right? God, we, we are accountable. If you, if you write a book, you can write the story, you can make the people in the story do whatever you want, right? You, you have, you own that stuff. You paint a painting, you can, Hang it in your hallway. You can hang it in your bathroom. And the painting can't come to you and say, I want to be in the kitchen. You don't, you don't tell me what to do. I, I'm going to determine my own reality. Right? The, the, the artist, the author, the creator has rights over and authority over the thing that he created. You made it. You own it. You have rights over it. That's how God's relationship works with his creation. God made the world. He owns the world. He made everyone and everything in the world, including me and you. So we don't get to say, we don't get to tell God with some uh, authority, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to determine my own reality. God speaks to us. God determines our reality. God has authority over us. We are accountable to him. God's the creator, we're the creature, we're going to stand before him, we're going to give an answer, we're going to give an account to him. Here's another uh, essential truth that we see in Genesis 1, which is that God is triune. God, God is, is uh, a, a tri- triune God, there is both unity and diversity and community within God. Right In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, we see the Father acting right out of the gate. Verse 2, we see the Spirit hovering over the waters. So the Holy Spirit is involved in the act of creation. Verse 3, God speaks and and says, let there be light. John chapter 1 identifies this word of God that is spoken in the act of creation as Jesus, the second member of the Trinity himself. And so so God uh, is a triune God, which which has, uh, you know, it... it, uh, that kind of helps us understand the creation for being what it is, right? There's like, we look at a world that has unity. It's one world, it's one planet, but it has diversity, all different kinds of life and 
big and grand and glorious and, and beautiful, right? So the world was created to testify to the glory of God. God is united and yet diverse. The world is united and yet diverse. Another, uh, another point that we see in Genesis 1 is that God is a God who speaks, right? So, so that's, that's the, the way by which God created the world is that he spoke it into existence, and so God is a God who speaks. God is not silent. God does not leave his people without a word, without some sort of revelatory word from him on who he is and who we are. God is a speaking God. And God, God calls his people to, to speak, right? God, God, the, the spoken word is integral into who God is and God's plan for saving people. God called prophets in the Old Testament to declare the word of God to the people of God, right? I mean, that's why we have, that's why we have sermons on Sunday morning where we read God's word and right, we don't, we don't come together every Sunday and, you know, do trust falls or like do finger painting. Like we come in and we hear the word of God spoken because God is a God who speaks and God, right? Faith comes from hearing. Hearing comes from the word of Christ. God speaks and speaking is what saves people is, is the word of, of God. Another, another uh, implication that we see kind of over and over again in Genesis chapter 1 is that God created the world good. The world, when God made it, was good. It was perfect. God says over and over that it was good. After he creates humanity, he says that it was very good, which also sets Christianity apart from any number of other worldviews. Right? So, so Eastern religions, a lot of them will say, uh, time is linear. So, so you're born, you live, you die, you're reborn, you live, you die over and over and over. Literally, I mean, an infinite number, a countless number of times. And so they come to understand life as just this infinitely long, tedious, laborious cycle on this insufferable place that is earth. And so the whole goal is to, is to get out of it. I need to get, I need to get away from this world that is bad. Because, because it's boring and it's long. I need to get out of it. I need to get to nirvana. Gnosticism was a, was a heresy that uh, kind of cropped up in the first, second centuries that a lot of the New Testament authors were writing against. It says that the physical world is bad uh, and that the, the secret knowledge about the, the immaterial world is good. So Jesus, of course, couldn't have been a, a physical human person because that's bad. Uh, you know, Jesus, uh, you know, humanity is bad. The world is bad. Paul wrote against this. John wrote against this. So, so the fact that God created the world good helps us to understand uh, Christianity as opposed to other religions. It also speaks to, you know, create, like care for God's, for the planet, creation care. If God made the world and he made the world good and he cares about the world, then God wants his people to care about the, the world. Another implication of the doctrine of creation is that God created the world for his glory. And so, so um, you know, if you look at Isaiah chapter 43, we see that God made his people and he formed them specifically for his glory. Uh, Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims the handiwork of God. God made the world. The created world exists specifically to give glory to God. If it's glorifying God, it's fulfilling the purpose that it was created for. If it's not glorifying God, it's, it's not doing what it was uh, created for. So, all, so again, regard, before you even talk about the age of the earth, before you talk about you know, whether 
dogs and cats have a common ancestor somewhere back down the line. There's all of these like, like important things that Christians all need to affirm together and that the, the doctrine of creation says to, to us. And, and so um, depending on how committed you are to evolution uh, and, and whether or not you understand, like how distinct you understand humanity to be from the rest of the animal world uh, is going to determine whether you can affirm this one. I would argue that Christians all have to affirm that God created Adam and Eve specially in his image, right? That Adam didn't have any parents, right? That, that he wasn't the, the, the product of evolutionary biological change. I mean, even if you affirm everything about the theory of evolution, uh, I still think that faithful Christians have to believe that God made Adam specially, right? God, God formed him out of the, the dust of the earth. He breathed his life into, into him. God, God made Adam and Eve specially that they, they, they didn't evolve. They weren't myths or legends or fairy tales. I think that there was a real guy named Adam and a real woman named Eve and they were humanity's first parents and they lived in a real garden of Eden and they really disobeyed God in time and space and that brought about a fall that was a real thing that happened in human history. Right? Regardless of where on the continuum you, you land, I think you have to affirm these things. And there's a few reasons why. So there's, there's yeah, a few little bullet points inside here. Uh, the, the, the special creation of Adam and Eve uh, is what gives us, it's what helps us believe in the, the doctrine of the image of God. The fact that humanity uh, has particular special, that, that we're not just animals. We're, we're, we're you know, specially created in God's image. We have dignity. This is why murder is wrong. This is why abortion is wrong. It's why racism is wrong. Right, right. You, you can't have uh, you, we, you and I don't bear God's image unless Adam was created specially by God in His image. Another reason why it's why why I think Christians need to believe that God created Adam and Eve specially in His image is because Jesus believed that Adam and Eve were were literally were literal people that were created in God's image. He says it over and over in um, Matthew nineteen, Mark chapter ten. Jesus affirms that. Adam and Eve were real people. So if you're going to pick a team on whether or not you think Adam and Eve were real people, I would advise picking the team that Jesus is on because he tends to be right because he is omniscient. So, um, so you get the doctrine of the image of God. Jesus believed in a literal Adam and a literal Eve. Another is because the, the, the doctrine of, I mean, Adam himself in the garden is a foreshadow of Jesus and of the gospel. So if you, if you kind of allegorize Adam and say that Adam and Eve in the garden never really happened, or it's just a, a, ficti- a, a fictitious story, then you lose this kind of thrust that the Bible is building toward who Jesus is, right? Adam was a man in a garden. God gave him a command. Adam disobeyed and he failed. And he incurred wrath and judgment. It was kind of brought on himself and all of his progeny. All of the people that would come from Adam all are under the wrath and judgment of God because of Adam's disobedience about a tree in a garden. Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane. God gives him a command regarding a tree, regarding the cross. And where Adam failed and disobeyed about the tree, Jesus succeeds and obeys about a tree. And in so doing, he kind of wins life and salvation for all of his descendants, all of the people who would believe and trust in him. There's meant to be a parallel between the first Adam and the last Adam, the first Adam and the second Adam. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5. He says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. 
And so death spread to all men. Therefore, as Adam's sin led to condemnation and death for all men, so Christ's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience there were many who were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So Jesus is the second Adam. You have to have a first Adam in order to have a second Adam. And then finally, a historical Adam and a fall that that took place in time and space, a real thing that happened in this world, helps us make sense of evil and suffering in, in the world, right? I mean, if we, if we understand that, that God made the world good, uh, then we have to think, well, why is the world as it is right now? Why is there death? Why is there suffering? Why is there, there pain? Why do people get sick and, and die? Why is suffering inherent to our collective experience? And, and part of the reason we understand that to be the case is because uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden sinned, and they invited death and suffering into the world. They kind of brought God's judgment onto them and to their descendants. So a real Adam and a real Eve and a real garden who really sinned and disobeyed against God help us to make sense of evil and suffering in the world. So that's like, uh, I think, eight things that we should all affirm about creation and then four kind of subpoints that help us understand why it's important to believe in the, the, you know, the literal historical Adam and Eve. And one final one is that God's creation uh, is a foreshadow of the new creation. So, so Adam and Eve, you know, we're, we're a foreshadow of what, what we understand about Jesus and the gospel. But if you look at Genesis chapter 1, and hold it up against Revelation chapter 21 and 22, what you see is that there's a lot of parallel language. Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. Revelation 21, uh, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, being prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and he will be their God. He will wipe away the tears from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no more mourning or crying or suffering or pain for the former things have passed away and God is making all things new. Heaven and the earth that invites death and suffering, the removal of death and suffering for the new heavens and the new earth. There's, there's meant to be a, a parallel. The, the doctrine of creation kind of is a, it, it gives a jumping off point for the doctrine of uh, eternal salvation that we enjoy with God in heaven. Right? So God creates the world. Humanity sins against God. They begin to resent God's love and God's authority. Right? But deep down, uh, humanity knows that they were meant for God. They know that they were created to know God and walk with Him. Creation itself, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, is, is groaning, like, like a, a, you know, experiencing the pains of childbirth because it's longing for this, like, garden-like, uh, Edenic experience. It's longing to be redeemed. And then Jesus comes. Heaven breaks in to earth. Jesus is born as a baby. He lives as a person. He keeps the law. He honors God. He loves his neighbor. Right? Jesus is the epitome of humanity. Jesus is what Adam was created to be. Jesus is what we were called to be. Jesus perfectly embodies the will and law of God. Jesus deserves to be in heaven with God, but instead, Jesus is betrayed by his friends, abandoned by his followers, arrested for crimes he didn't commit. He's hung on a cross, and the wrath of God falls on Jesus instead of on God's people. 
And then Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He gets up out of the grave in newness of life. Jesus takes the, the new life, the resurrection life that he has, has won and secured, and he gives it to his people. They don't have to pay the penalty for their sins anymore because Jesus suffered for them. They enjoy new life. And he also gives that resurrection life to all of creation. Jesus restores all of creation back to what it was when He created it. And now the the beauty and the glory that was once in the Garden of Eden is now re-established forever and ever. Right In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then at the culmination of human history, on, on, on the outset of eternity, God establishes the new heavens and the new earth. And we, the people of God, dwell with God in it. Like a bride with her husband. There's no more death, crying, or pain because Jesus has made everything new. The doctrine of creation is of utmost importance for Christians. Not because it's not because we want to argue with people about how old the, the planet is, but because the, the doctrine of creation points forward to Jesus. It points forward to the new creation. The doctrine of creation tells us about God and who He is about ourselves and who we are, about Christ and what He's done for us, and it tells us about eternity and how we will spend it with Jesus forever if we trust Him as our Savior. So, let's pray together. Father in Heaven, uh, we thank You that You are our sovereign Creator, that You made the world and everything that is in it. Lord, we acknowledge that we are accountable to you and that we will answer to you for how we live our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you have made us as humanity in your image, right? To to behold your glory and to glorify you. We thank you, Lord, for the, the truth of the gospel. We thank you for Jesus, the second Adam, who has uh, come to us to save us from our sins. Lord Jesus, we pray that we could look to you and trust in you and walk with you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.